Some of you might have heard this week of a controversy that was stirred up uh, within the Christian sphere. Um, there is uh, a new movement called I'm Not Going Home out there, right? Some of you are not familiar with that controversy. That's okay. Um, but basically, the controversy was stirred up by a prominent Christian pastor who, when asked to give a word association with the name of a prominent female leader, the first words out of his mouth were, go home. To which an audience of all men erupted with cheers and laughter. It did happen. You can find it. It's on the web. I watched it. Um... It was kind of shocking. It was shocking in the sense that as I pictured Jesus walking with the people that surrounded him, and immediately that conjures to our mind 12 men, but we also know all throughout the Gospels that there were more than just men following Jesus around. There were men and women, and I I started to think if somebody were to prompt Jesus with a question like that, first of all, it was out of place. I don't even think Jesus would have entertained it. But had he even entertained it, I know those would not have been the words out of his mouth because Jesus was the most empowering person in the entire New Testament to females and to women. Jesus came to what we would say is upend the social order of the day. He established something new. It was called the new kingdom of God. The kingdom is now present among us. And it was so radical and so new, so different, that it challenged all of the pre-existing social norms of the day. Jesus empowered women. He never would have said, go home. And I found that offensive. Now, I know that there are some among us who will read the verses that you just heard today and have studied them and have very different perspectives than the Free Methodist Church. I recognize that. And it is not wrong to hold a different perspective. I will certainly come at it today from the perspective of the Free Methodist Church, the Wesleyan Church, the, the heritage that has birthed who we are which is very much believing in the empowerment of women to lead. But that does not diminish that there are other perspectives out there. And I don't mean to mischaracterize the fact that other positions exist and we can have a healthy dialogue and a healthy discussion. And therefore, I am opening it up this Wednesday because there is no way to adequately work through this. I am inviting anybody that would like to come. We will have that dialogue this Wednesday evening. I will be here and we will talk through it. There will be more of a, of a teaching like a Bible study, but there will be some discussion and different things going on because there is no way to peel back the layer on these verses and do them justice in the context of teaching, what I intend to do a little bit more today is to hopefully share with you the big picture. And let's remind ourselves what that big picture is, the letter to the Ephesians. In fact, there are three different 
letters in the New Testament that really talk specifically about this. The one is in Ephesians, the other one is Colossians. They are considered almost one in the same, one probably being written relative to the other. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then also Peter deals with these ideas as well. But remember, let's just look back on this series that we have been in, the Masterpiece in Progress. We have been talking about this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. This was the early church, the new unfolding, birthing church. And there were all of these perspectives and ideas that were being brought in. They were Jewish in background and Gentile in background. And there was all of this pre-existing notions of what relationships should look like and who was in charge and who should say what and all of, all of that stuff. And Paul is speaking into that and saying, you are something new. You, church, are something altogether new. A divine mystery from the beginning of the world that nobody knew until now and now I'm sharing it with you it's exciting it's something that you get to live out it's called the church it's called the church and and in the context of the church we're not to look like the rest of the world we are to look different we are new this is a new kingdom we are to be unified remember we've been talking about unity we are to be one but our unity is made mature in our diversity it's a beautiful thing that we don't look alike it's a beautiful thing that we don't think alike it's a beautiful thing that we have all of these backgrounds being brought together but remember we're all one in jesus christ we have all been filled now with the same holy spirit we are new we are different and it is special we are to be unified but then over the last couple weeks you know that there's also an element of what we would call personal piety involved. How do I become the best person in the context of the church? How do I become that best person that I can be? Well, it's by, by looking inside myself and looking at those ways that how I live is contrary to the way Christ lived. And how do I live that is contrary to the way the church has laid out to be lived? It's called personal piety, or we would call it holiness. So there's unity this desire to be one and to represent this new church to the world. And then there's holiness, personal, and now, today, these verses get into more of the corporate. Paul is speaking into a cultural context. This is no longer just about you and me personally. This is no longer about what happens inside the walls of the church. Now he's saying, but listen, there's, there's a way that we're going to relate to one another that's going to be different than what's happening out there in the world. And that's necessary. It's necessary for our witness. It's necessary because it's the way God originally intended some things to be. If you're interested in some background on that, I wrote a little bit this week, midweek, about Genesis 1 and 2 versus Genesis 3. And you can go and read that online. I'm not going to dive into that. We'll probably touch on that a little bit more on Wednesday. But there was an order to the way God created things that had nothing to do with hierarchy. There was an order to the way God created things that was meant to be lived out in unity, in partnership, in equality, to represent Him in His image. Men and women made in the image of God. And Paul is now bringing us back into that context. 
there's a story that I want to read for you in that context. It's a story that was written a couple of years ago by a young woman who is now deceased. She died tragically far too early. She had a somewhat prophetic voice to her. And it's a story that I find very, very compelling. And I think speaks to how this context, these verses, can be heard in a different kind of way. But before I say it, I need to let you know that the references in this particular story are to some very specific cultural things that were happening in that time. In that time, as you might know or may have studied, it was a male-dominated society. We would call it a patriarchy, right? Where men had all the status and women, children, and slaves had some kind of pecking order that was way down the line from where men stood. Men were in charge, women, children, and slaves were slightly more than property in some cases and actual property in other cases. That is the context, and that goes all were created to be in charge and we had the power, the authority, the ability to think and reason and all of that and then women, children and slaves in that kind of order were next to nothing. They just needed to be managed and in order to manage them there had to be sort of a hierarchy, there had to be a structure, there had to be an order to things and that order was what made society work and so then laws were built and especially in the early centuries the 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 early first part of the centuries when christ lived in a few hundred years after laws were actually built to uphold those societal norms within the greco-roman world women children slaves they were meant to be controlled they were meant to be managed marriages were predominantly arranged for economic reasons the concept of marital love was foreign to most. That is the culture and the context into which Paul wrote his letters and why they would have sounded so radically different than what you and I read today. Because we read in the context of wives submit to your husbands and husbands are the head of the... We read into that love and relationship and desire and, and it just wasn't there in the same way. It was so radical and I think this story will help you to understand or to see that. It is a story that is actually based on Colossians. I wrestled with whether or not to read it. But Colossians and Ephesians are so tightly linked and the content so similar that it makes, it works. And you'll see how it works as we go through it. I want to read for you the verse that sets up the story. It comes from Colossians 4.15. And in Colossians 4.15, Paul says this, Give my greetings to Nympha and the church 
in her house. Okay? Let the story begin. The sun has set over a chilly Laodicea, but Nympha's home is warm with lamplight and hums with the welcoming sound of stifled laughter and whispered conversation. As soon as Drusilla and I slip through the door together, we can sense that something is stirring. There is news. My mother-in-law asks her friends, all of them also widows, what has happened? Well, Tychicus has arrived from Colossae, they say, with a letter from Paul. I am happy because this means I will get to listen to Nympha read. It mesmerizes me every time. The way she enunciates every syllable carefully, gently, sometimes pausing to explain the meaning of the more difficult words or ideas, or to laugh forgivingly when one of the children decides to throw a tantrum. We are mostly women, widows, slaves, and poor laborers, unable to read the letters from the apostles on our own. Though among us are a few wealthy tradesmen, the owners of sprawling households, it is strange to see us all sitting together at the sacred meal, master breaking bread with his slave, a Jew sharing a joke with a former pagan priest, a husband pouring wine for his wife, a zealot debating politics with a tax collector. But this is what makes us different. It's what makes us Christians. Nympha and her husband are wealthy traders, both of them followers of Jesus, but he travels so much, she usually manages our ecclesia, that is our gathering, on her own. We are known to Paul as the church that meets at Nympha's house. Maybe I'm a little jealous of Nympha. My husband is a laborer and poor, and I think he resents the fact that a girl who came with such a small dowry would give him so much trouble over religion. He has been harsh with Drusilla, too, recently. For the government has made it illegal for widows to remain unmarried. But she insists on serving alongside the other widows in the church. There are murmurs at this practice of caring for widows as a community is yet another part of our way of life that brothers that bothers the government officials. To them, tampering with the household order is akin to tampering with the created universe. And yet another example of Christians challenging the authority of the empire. You don't have to be the most educated person in Laodicea to know that the Greek philosophers were rather insistent upon the importance of maintaining a household in which the man exercises unilateral authority over his wives, his children, and his slaves. And yet, we have been taught that among us there should be neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ. And so the most common debate in Nympha's house is about whether we can accommodate laws like these without compromising our identity. Many Christians have gone to jail, and some have even been killed. The question is, do we risk our necks over differences with the government regarding our household structure? Or do we let things like that go? No one can seem to agree. Perhaps tonight's letter will help. It is a beautiful letter, and tears run down my face as Paul, through Nympha, speaks of our reputation among the churches, 
Nympha smiles as her voice carries the words, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people. As she continues to read, we hear about Paul's incarceration and persecution, about how Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation, about watching out for all the false teachings that circulated through the trade routes, about how we ought to stop judging each other over differences of opinion regarding religious festivals and food. And I blush a little at this point and resolve to make peace with some other rather opinionated friends before the next sacred meal about how we should clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and love, about how we must forgive one another, about how the things that once separated Jew from Greek and slave from free are broken down at the foot of the cross, about how we should sing more hymns. Drusilla smiles widely at that one. But then I find myself catching my breath as Nympha reads, out loud, that we need not fear the government because Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over the cross. A nervous murmur fills the room. What if somebody overheard that? That quote could certainly be taken out of context by a Roman soldier. I catch Tychicus, who glances out the window. But then my surprise gives way to revelation. I've never thought about it that way. Christ's death at the hands of government represented a sort of subversive triumph over it. His obedience in humbling himself and loving his enemies, caring for the poor, welcoming the marginalized, and turning away from violence made a mockery of this opulent and bloodthirsty and oppressive empire. He refused to play by their rules, and yet he broke none of their laws. He did not fight them. He disarmed them. I wonder if that's what we're supposed to do. Then I hear Nympha say, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Immediately, I recognize this is something of a recitation of the household codes that more educated women like Nympha probably had memorized. Someone named Aristotle had composed the most famous of these, basing them on what he believed was the inherent inferiority of women, children, and slaves. But in Paul's letter, Christ serves as the ultimate authority, not the government. Hmm. Then Nympha's voice grows quieter, and I see one of her eyebrows raise. Husbands, love your wives? She trails off, and we sit in stunned silence. This is new. I've only heard of very wealthy couples who married because they were in love, most, like my husband and I, are joined together in a business transaction. I was 12 years old at the time. No one expects husbands to love their wives. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, this is somewhat familiar. Fathers, do not embitter your children. I have a feeling Aristotle didn't give instructions like these to fathers. 
Then things get really strange. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Nympha continues a little hesitantly. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I feel sorry for the few wealthy men among us because suddenly every eye is on them. Is Paul suggesting that both slaves and owners share a master? Is he directly challenging Aristotle by suggesting that the two are equals? It takes Nympha a moment to recover, but she reads on. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. At the meal, everyone's talking about the letter. But I am lost in thought. Maybe I was on to something. Maybe, like Jesus, we can refuse to play by Rome's rules without breaking any of Rome's laws. Maybe we remain faithful to Jesus, not by overturning the household codes, but by transcending them, living in a way that highlights the foolishness of the hierarchies they contain. Christ is the head of the home, the church. So here we submit to one another out of reverence for him. One master, one head, one father. Later, Nympha will read other letters, letters that speak of husbands loving their wives as much as Christ loved the church, willing to give their lives for them, and of Christians submitting to one another and living as slaves to one another. No Greek or Jewish philosopher or Roman legislator had spoken to women, children, and slaves directly like this. None had given us this much agency or this much dignity. The point, Nympha says with a wry smile, is to imitate Jesus, not Rome. The night after the first letter, Drusilla and I creep quietly through the streets together, arm in arm on our way home. And I wonder aloud if there will come a day when there will be no more household codes. If Drusilla and I will be treated with as much dignity as my husband. And if slaves will no longer have earthly masters. Well, Elia, Drusilla whispers back, her breath against the cool air. Hasn't God promised to make all things new? And then I have this dangerous thought. Maybe this is how it starts. The story was written by Rachel Held Evans. I think as you can see, it captures the radical nature of what Paul was writing in his letters to the early church. We cannot read them through our lenses and adequately capture what was going on in the early church. This stuff was radical. And it spoke into a social structure and a social contour that was being upended. 
Christ was initiating something new, a new kingdom upon the earth, a new pattern, which was really just the beginning of the restoration of the original pattern to be completely fulfilled at the end of time. What was that new thing? It was the redemption and restoration of humanity in community together called the church, living and loving with unity and diversity in general equality under the authority of Christ. In short, an entirely new social order driven by the idea that we should, in Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the hinge verse in this entire section. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. This new social order upended the order of the day by putting the onus for the order on the men in a unique kind of way. You see, traditionally, women, children, and slaves were the ones that were responsible to keep the order. Just stay in your place, do your part, and let the men lead, and the order will be maintained. And Paul is saying, no, it is not the responsibility of the women, children, and slaves. Men, it is your responsibility because you are to act like Christ. And how did Christ act? We can dip over into another letter that Paul wrote, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 5, and it says this, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus. The model. Jesus. The one that we are to live like. Jesus, the one that set in motion an entire upended social order. He was not the authority that was to be followed. He was the servant that came to serve and to love and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was completely upside down. So men, if you want to read that you are the head of the home, but you're the head like Christ, then you are no more in charge than that woman has the power, to, the power over you to tell you exactly how you should live. Because you're now their servant, their slave. You are there to help them be everything that they can be. That's what Christ did for his church. A humble slave or servant. He gave all of who he was to make sure that his bride, the church, might one day live with him in eternity. He was never demanding or coercive or had any expectations of being served. Instead, he loved he served. He extended kindness and grace and forgiveness. And himself upended the social order by completely subverting the Romans through his death on the cross. The only hierarchical model he offered was to undo hierarchy. He obtained victory through his death. He made his church holy, blameless, and pure through his word. He did all the work in humility to present his church to himself without spot or blemish. It's 
a beautiful picture of sacrifice. He demanded nothing, but he offered everything and gave us the choice to follow or to reject. Even though he anticipated our rejection, knowing that many hearts would just simply say no, he did it anyway. He sacrificed his life on the cross. Some might even say that he wasted his life and his good works for people who would ultimately reject him. Bishop Emeritus David Kendall says that Jesus was the ultimate prodigal because the word prodigal means wasteful. What he did was so generous, it almost seems wasteful to a world that would simply reject him. Let's call to mind as we bring this to a close Paul's words in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Some of you have them memorized. Say them in your heart with me. I appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. And Here's the phrase. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The transformation spoken of in Ephesians is one of unity in diversity, one of personal piety, which we call holiness, and relational equality, in which those considered lowest are elevated to the highest, and those considered highest serve with the utmost humility to elevate and make sure others have all that they need to succeed. Whether women, children, or slaves, orphans, widows, immigrants, unwed mothers, moms caring, considering, or who have had abortions, prostitutes, anyone who doesn't fit the mold, that's who Jesus loved, elevated, and served. So men, make every effort to love and serve in humility in all of your relationships. For all of us, men and women alike, make every effort to contextualize your love, your submission, and your respect in the context of who Christ is. Christ is our example. Christ is Lord. We say that with me. Christ is Lord. That is who we serve. That is what we do, why we do, who we do it for. He is the example. Amen. There is so much more rattling around up here, I'm telling y'all. So come on Wednesday. Let's talk about it. I'm sure, I hope, and I actually hope this as I was putting these thoughts together, I hope that you hear this in a way that is somewhat offensive or radical because it would have been to the early church as well. I'm not trying to offend you, neither was Paul trying to offend the early church. 
But it was so different that it would have been hard to hear. And it would have been hard to receive. Maybe not for the women, the children, and the slaves, but for any men out there who are kind of stuck in thinking that they have a certain idea of how men are supposed to live in the world. This is challenging in a good way. So we're going to take some time. We're just going to give you some space. I'd love for you to, to process a little bit. We have the altars that are open. If you'd like some prayer, I'll be up here. We have the offering baskets. If you'd like to write a prayer card or put in your uh, information that you're new, the, prayer ba- the baskets are up here. The ushers will be in the back as well in a couple of minutes. If you have an offering, a tithe, a gift, this is the opportunity to prepare that as well. This is a way that we respond. We respond to what the Lord is saying to us in a variety of ways. So however the Lord's speaking to you, let it be so. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for these words. I thank you for your servant, Rachel, who wrote such a powerful story that helps us to relate. Lord, we thank you for your servant, Paul, the apostle that gave us so much to think about. And God, we simply say an overwhelming thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to upend all that we know and knew and understood. Lord, I pray that as we process and work through all of this, some of it being kind of new and radical to hear, and some of it maybe just being an affirmation of what we want to hear, and some of it maybe just not quite ready to hear. Lord, whatever it is, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that it will work inside of us, that we will see you in it, that we will recognize your image being brought to bear through these words, that we will recognize your plan and your purpose since the beginning of time being brought to bear in these words. By the power of your Spirit, work in us, Lord Jesus. Have your way, in Jesus' name.